everyone. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 16 of the Centennial Podcast. And this week, we've got a few topics lined up for you. In the first period of tonight's episode, we'll be looking at the Willannon trade for Mike Amadio. Then we'll move into Senators' special teams. What's going on with the power play? And let's take a look at that penalty kill, too. In the second period of tonight's episode, we'll be speaking with Chris Stevenson. He's uh, been on TSN 1200 a bit lately. Uh, He's kind of been filling in there in some of the time slots during the week, and we're really excited to have him on. So we're going to be talking with him in the second period of tonight's episode about some stuff regarding DJ Smith's performance with the team and then what the centers might do at the deadline. Of course, we got to look at the UND prospects. When are they signing? What's their impact going to be like? And then we'll kind of do some... uh, some discussion, some drawdown discussion in the third period after our talk with Chris. So stay tuned. We have a great episode ahead. All right. So let's start off first period talk. We're going to talk about the Willannon trade. So Ottawa sends Christian Willannon, who's kind of been on the outs with DJ Smith, as we've kind of noticed. It's been very clear this season that DJ Smith doesn't have the most trust, or at least didn't have the most trust, uh, in Christian Willannon, especially in the defensive end. And so Christian Willannon gets sent off to LA for Mike Amadeo? Amadeo. Amadeo, (laughs) shit. (laughs) So Christian Willannon gets sent to LA for Mike Amadio, and he is almost 25. He's six foot one, right-handed center. The centers usually have a lot of left-handed centers, so I mean that already is is a big change to our center core. <laughs> he spent uh, last four seasons on the LA Kings roster, depth player, played 168 games. He's got 16 goals, 23 assists over that span. This season he's been pretty quiet, only two assists in 20 games. But, uh, you know, it's it's a depth piece for the centers. So, other Matt, I'll let you uh, talk about this one a little bit. What do the centers get here? I mean, uh, they, they got a depth forward, really. Uh, I think somebody brought it up on Twitter that was a really good point, is that uh, he is eligible for the uh, the expansion draft. And so that could make uh, Chris Tierney now more of a uh, more of a trade target for teams because um, you need a certain amount of players uh, eligible for for the uh, the expansion draft. So that it's kind of a, you know one benefit. But he he had 16 points last season. He has three points this season in you know 20 some odd games. He. I, I see him having a tough time cracking the roster as it is, like playing wise. But I think it's it's definitely a really good position to have. You know, it pushes guys off of the taxi squad, like Michael Haley. Um, you know, we don't have to see him anymore. Um, Amadio is is a legitimate, you know, uh, fourth line player. And you know, if Clark Bishop has a poor game. Bishop gets put on onto the, uh, the taxi squad, and you could you could put Amadio there. Uh, I know he has been playing the wing as well. So if you wanted to put uh, Nick Paul on uh, at fourth line center there, have Amadio on the wing. It it's an interesting project, and and you know, it. Uh, I'm gonna miss Willannon a lot. I I always 
had uh, a lot of faith for the guy and and uh, a lot of time for him, but you know, I I want him to prove us wrong essentially. Yeah, I, I think that's pretty fair to say. Uh, Christian Milan, I think there was a lot of potential in his game, and we really never got to see him break out and really hit his stride. And I think that was mostly due to that injury that he suffered a couple of years ago. And I think really, that really derailed his development. And I think a lot of Sens fans, myself included, really thought that, you know, okay, uh, Willannon at that point prior to the injury, he's really coming to his own. He could be a top four defenseman going forward. I believe he was only 23, 24 at the time. So there was a lot of high hopes for what he could become. And yeah, I mean, I guess the Senators, they just no longer saw him chipping in and it just becomes another defenseman that, you know, the Senators' future used to look at uh, with LeJoie, with Yaros, uh, now with Willannon, all three of them gone this season in trades. So definitely interesting. And when we're looking at uh, Mike uh, Amadeo, Amadio. <laughs> Sorry, man. It's because now I'm confused. I'm off my game. Amadio. Oh, man. Uh, Amadio. All right. I got it. I got it. I got it. Okay. So when looking at Mike Amadio, you know, he's going to be going up against Clark Bishop, really, I think, for that fourth line center position. And I mean, hey, if he doesn't crack the main roster, he's cleared waivers. He can go into Belleville. He can play some minutes with them. He's got some pro experience. And I think that could help develop some of the the younger guys there. And yeah, so I mean, it's kind of too bad that Willana didn't work out here, but I'm kind of same with you here. I, I hope that he does prove us. I, I don't know if prove us wrong is the best way to put it in my own words anyway, but I think at least show sense management that he had more to his game than they really uh, let him show. And so, yeah. That's kind of where I sit on it. I don't know, Ben, if you have any farewell words for Christian Willan in here. Yeah, well, I think you guys have hit most of the main points. Obviously, we hope he can put it together over in LA. I think we saw flashes of what of the player that he could be, but like a lot of players, you know, a key injury or a bad injury at a key time in a player's career can can derail things. And I think I mentioned this point on a podcast previous when we talked about this is like there's 100 200 300 Christian Willannons out there in the last decades of you know the NHL guys who hit a hit a bad injury at a crucial time and never quite made it and you know they might might have played a, a few dozen NHL games maybe 50 or something but they never quite hit their potential and that that can happen that's the unfortunate reality in professional sports obviously we hope that he can have success in LA. We're all rooting for him. Um, but I think in terms of the sense D core depth chart, I think in the immediate sense, he might've been an asset to the team, but in the long term, I think he's going to end up being passed in the depth chart by um, guys like, I mean, Shabbat obviously, but you know, Sanderson, Brandstrom, you know, um, even guys like JBD and Lassie Thompson. So it's not the end of the world to see, see him leave. And it's nice that we got something back for him. And uh, if there's one final point that I can make about Willannon, it's that perhaps this move could signify the faith that the management has in the other D prospects that we have on the team that are coming up or are about to come up. I think that could be an interesting angle that I haven't really seen other people discuss here. That you know, if they if they were curious about whether 
a guy like Brandstrom or a guy like JBD or Lassie Thompson had what it took to make it in the NHL, they might want to keep keep a guy like Willanet around. But I think uh, there's possibly a positive spin to be said there that if they feel comfortable trading him, that they think that they have all the pieces that they need on the back end. Your big brain rationale there makes me think, like, imagine if Dorian was like, nope, DJ, I want you to fucking play Brandstrom, so I'm getting rid of every defense <laughs> that possibly could play in front of him. That, that isn't named, that. you know, these people. Uh, yeah, that, so that's hilarious. <laughs> when When is uh, Coburn getting traded, then? Uh, yeah. doesn't, uh, actually, he does play because, you know. He's played 12 games for the Senators. He had a nice backhand assist in his first game against the Leafs. And mm. since then, I don't even Straight know up, if I've seen him on the ice. I think the second last game he played in six minutes, he, like from the start of the game to six minutes in, he was a minus three. And I was like, this is why you don't play him. But, yeah, it's not. Yeah, no good. It's, it's no not good. Bueno. <laughs> it's definitely no bueno. <laughs> So moving on from the Willanna trade, we'll talk a bit about our special teams and the center's power play for the longest time. It feels like we talk about this every year. It is awful. They are 27th in the league right now. They're only converting 13.7% of their opportunities. It's, it's abysmal. It's really bad, guys. It's really bad. Now, Bennett, I, I know you hate the power play, and I know you hate the drop pass. I will let you go at this. It's all yours, buddy. Sure, and I'm not going to go to him because we are going to be discussing that with our guest uh, in the next segment. But uh, just to you know, kind of high level, it it really it really is deflating to see the team put in a position to succeed. Like when they get when they get a power play, especially if it's like a comes at the right time in the game too, and it's like really they're starting to generate some momentum, and we get a power play, and it's like great. This is the kind of time when you know, a better, more skilled team than us. I don't mean that as a shot. It's like, we all know that we're rebuilding right now. That's the kind of point in a game where a good team would, like, consolidate their control over the game, get a power play goal, and start to, like, settle into, like, the rhythm of dictating the pace of it. And that's something that the Sens keep failing to do. It's like, that's, you know, the power play isn't just, like, a percentage that lives in isolation. It can It can turn a game around, you know, when you get when you get one on the PP at the right time, it can really, you know, be demoralizing for the other team. It can give you guys a boost. And what's happening at least half the time is the opposite. I mean, it's so often that the sends and faceoffs are key to it too, right? We lose a faceoff in the office and zone right at the start of the power play. And because we're committed to that drop as zone entry, we have a hard time gaining the zone. And then we spend no joke, like a minute, a minute and a half, sometimes the entire two minutes just trying to get back into the zone if we lose that initial face-off. And the difference between when we win that face-off and we don't have to try and gain the zone, we already have control, and we can set up, can get set up right away, is huge. But that only happens about half the time. So what we're seeing is, you know, half the time, the power play just drags, and it's just, you know, no benefit to us. It's, it's deflating, and mm-hmm. it's a boost for the other team. And then the other half of the time, the power play actually looks decent, but even then, you were only converting it sometimes. I find when it is uh, effective and efficient, it's when a player like Stutzla or Shabbat or one of our really skilled players just brings it into the zone. Like, they yeah. just 
get zone entry by, you know, doing a little dipsy doodle, a little how do you do, <laughs> you know, um, and, and moving that puck to the sidewall and then gaining entry and, and possessing it there for a little bit. And then it almost staggers the other team because like, you have to assume other teams, video coaches are like, this is what they do. Just defend it like that. And then, you know, you have <laughs> them not do a drop pass and then everybody's like, code red, code red. We don't know what to do now. You know, <laughs> like it, uh, the Sens, when they don't do a drop pass, have Stutzla, Batherson, and, and Josh Norris or whoever you have in that center slot on the ice. It looks lethal. As you said, Bennett, it doesn't necessarily convert, but I'm happy if it just looks good. <laughs> yeah, because then you know the chances are there, the goals will come. And I mean, we did see that initially when Batherson and Stutzla were put on that power play unit and then swapped sides so they're both on their shooting side. Man, it looked damn good. It slowed down a lot recently, and I kind of think that's partially just because I feel like Stutzla's given a lot of minutes. And as a guy who's a first-year NHL player and a young player at that too... I think it's going to be quite hard to adjust to an NHL season at that age. Uh, the amount of, of of games you're playing, especially in a quarantine year, we'll call it, where you know you've got more games crunched together, it's it's a lot. And I'm hoping that this past week off will help, especially with the younger players, to give them that rest they need to just kind of settle down. Be like, all right, we had a bit of a break here. Let's get back into it. Let's finish the season strong, and hopefully the power play will bounce back with it. That's the optimist in me. I guess we'll see if it goes down that way. And yeah, that's really all I can say. You just got to hope that it improves uh, with the young players getting that rest, and hopefully some of the veterans, whichever ones have not been performing on the power play and should be like done enough, hopefully uh, they actually start contributing because <laughs> that would be really, really helpful. All right. Well, everybody, we welcome Chris Stevenson onto our show, host at TSN 1200 occasionally. And you do some of the pre and post games for the Senators, which feels like they haven't played in a long time. No kidding. Especially this year when it seemed like they were playing every night. Exactly. (laughs) So we'll kind of start off. uh, Before you came on, we were talking a little bit about the Willannon trade. And I think we were less kind of wanting to ask you about the return for Willannon and more ask about what really it shows about the organization to have another defenseman who there were high hopes for leave the organization. I mean, a little while back, you know, in our recent memory, we'll say, Weir Kosh is one of them. Uh, and now more recently, we have LeJoie, Yaros, and now Willannon, all gone from the organization. Chris Weidman, too, as well. Yeah, I mean, the Uber video didn't really help. Yeah, there were some extenuating circumstances. Yeah. <laughs> but I... I kind of wanted to get your opinion on really uh, what the organization uh, has has done with defensemen in its recent history, kind of just churning them out and no one's really been clicking. And it always seems like the Sens have a star defenseman, but never the supporting cast. So I kind of wanted to get your opinion on the defensive core in Ottawa. Yeah, just um, specifically to the Willannon situation, I, I thought it was is- interesting listening to the um, the comments that, that Troy Mann made um, I think it was yesterday on TSN twelve hundred, talking about um, how he didn't think Willannon was the same defenseman after his shoulder injury and subsequent surgery. That 
you know, maybe in the back of his mind still, he hadn't gotten to the point where he could go back to retrieve pucks, not be worried about, about that shoulder. So, you know, again, I, I look at that situation and I, and I think that's an absolutely valid um, observation by the coach who, you know, is obviously closely watching all of those kind of details in a player's game. And that the coach picked up on that and felt that, um, you know, maybe he was, he was reticent to, uh, to take contact in, in going back to get pucks, which would certainly um, affect his confidence. And uh, again, um, no matter what the reason, like you guys said, you know, we're seeing another uh, young defenseman who came into the organization with, um, with high hopes leave the organization and it's funny just before i came on here i was i was um uh they're gonna play the montreal canadians tomorrow night so i was re-watching some of the uh some of the canadians game from last night against uh against the oilers uh shutout performance by the canadians i thought they did a wonderful job against the speedy oilers team of, of getting the puck out of their zone and that's been one of the things that's dogged the senators for and I, I don't even know how far back to go in terms of, of that being an issue. <laughs> and Luke and Luke Richardson is, you know, coaches the defense in in Montreal. And yeah. I I just put a tweet out there saying, you know, I I uh I, I think about all the young defensemen coming into the into the organization in the next little while and and I I still think the senators missed the boat there in letting Luke Richardson uh leave the organization. And that yeah. that's something for me is has been a missing factor. You look at most of of the uh, of the successful teams, um, and you need to have that. I think a veteran NHL defenseman who can help develop their prospects, and even if that's if, even if it's not going to be. Um, a guy behind the bench and Luke Richardson has certainly shown himself to be capable of being behind an NHL bench. And I think in the next while we're going to see Luke Richardson's name come up more and more often in terms of head coaching material. But, you know, I, I wonder why teams haven't had even a full-time defensive type coach. Mm -hmm. Even if it's not behind the bench, it's just a guy who specializes in, in player development. And helping develop your young defensemen. For for me, that's been a big hole in the Senators organization over the last few years. And I think it's, you know, I really do think it's something they should consider addressing. When you think about what it would cost you for a coach in terms of your budget, when you're talking about, you know, a, a <laughs> 65, 70, 75 million dollar salary cap. And what it would cost to bring in a coach who could help develop your prospects and maybe you know, get more out of them or at least help them fulfill their potential. I just think it's something that absolutely they should be looking at. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And, and I, we were actually talking about, uh, bef before you came on your tweet about Luke Richardson. Um, yeah. I think it's an excellent comment, especially considering, you know, Luke Richardson, uh, when he was, when he was with, uh, Binghamton, you know, brought up a lot of excellent uh, NHL players 
Sure problem. Did. Yep. Exactly. And, and, uh, I thought it was uh, a mistake to let him go. Um, especially when we had, I believe there was a bit of a, there was turnover and he was still in the organization and we were looking for a, for a head coach. And, uh, I mean, he's a local guy, (laughs) like he played for the Ottawa West Golden Knights. He, uh, he has roots here and I think it would have been an excellent story for him to, uh, to coach his hometown, uh, senators. And I, I love the point. Um, we have some great NHL defensemen that played for the Ottawa senators are now sort of linked to the organization with Chris Phillips and to an extent, Mark Mathot those two guys might be worth investigating as they were legit NHL defensemen. And if you want to teach defensemen who better to do it than them. And I think even if at this point, and I'm sure both of those guys would embrace it. I, I'm not going to say I, I know both of them really well. I certainly know both of them. Um, I think both of those guys would embrace an opportunity to go on the ice and just have, you know, they talk about goalie school where, you know, the goaltenders go on the ice early and work with uh, goaltending coach Pierre Gru. With with such a, not particularly right now, um, but I think certainly Thomas Shabbat could probably benefit from their insight. But in the next couple of years, if you're going to be adding, you know, JBD and, and uh, Lassie Thompson and Jake Sanderson, um, I would think certainly a, a a good development path to have at that point would be even on a you know a semi regular basis reaching out to resources like those guys and bring them in as a as a guest coach type thing. I'm, I, those guys would love they would absolutely love to be able to be on the ice with those kids and pass along what they had learned in their you know in their ten and fifteen and twenty year careers in the National Hockey League and. And um, having had ties to the organization and being able to pass a little bit, um, pass along a little bit of, of the, uh, you know, the, the uh, mentality from the times when the senators were actually a good team, I think would be, I think that would be a great thing for these, for these kids to have that kind of, uh, to have that kind of influence. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, Luke Richardson had a very long career in the NHL. He played over 1400 games. Sure so did. it's not, yeah. So it's not even like he's, you know, a, a pushover guy who got a little cup of coffee in the NHL. He was there for many years. So no, and he, and he, he has been involved in the game from those early days when the game was much different than it is now and, and coaches in the league now. So he's lived through all of the, the changes and, the, the ways that playing the position of defense in the National Hockey League have changed. And, you know, I just, uh, and again, I know uh, I saw somebody say, oh, he left because they wouldn't give him the head coaching job. For me, there would have been a lot of ways around that. I mean, you could make him an associate coach. I mean, you know, clearly no other team uh, since then saw Luke Richardson as, as a head coach. So I'm not going to criticize the Senators for not giving him the head coaching job. Um, you know, I think everybody felt like, you know, maybe he needed a little bit more experience before he'd be ready to make that kind of leap. But, you know, there's ways around it. Like I said, you could have made him an associate coach or, or something along those lines. But I, I really think that that's a, uh, I really think that that's a position that they should seriously, uh, they should seriously consider, um, fulfilling. 
And it's nothing against the, the uh, current coaches. I know you guys want to talk about what DJ Smith has, has done so far as well. And that's no knock on on the other coaches. For me, all it's doing is is for a relative pittance when it comes to the operating budget of a National Hockey League team is bringing in another set of, of eyes and ears and knowledge that can help maximize the potential of the players that, that you have. And again, I don't think I can emphasize this enough. I really think that that with the the kids they've got coming into the organization, I really think that that's a position they should be adding to the player development department with Jesse Winchester and Sean Donovan. But they should bring in be bringing in a guy specifically to work with these young defensemen. And if it's an ex senator, so much the better. Yeah, and I think Luke Richardson would have been a guy I would have loved to have seen on the senator's staff. Uh, when Guy Boucher was head coach with the team, I feel like a player and, you know, don't want to traumatize or throw this guy under the bus again, but Cody Cece, I think he really could have benefited from some more oversight from a coach <laughs> yeah, like well, Luke Richardson. I think that's, a, I think that's a very fair comment. Yeah. You know, Luke, you know, with the experience Luke Richardson had, he played with all kinds of guys like Cody Cece, you know, and he would have seen, you know, how guys with Cody Cece's skill set would have been able to be effective and find a way to survive in the NHL. And he would have seen a bunch of guys who never figured it out and, and know what they did wrong. And, um, you know, I think that's a very valid, uh, I think that's a very valid point. So I think we'll go and talk more about DJ Smith now, although I love going and talking about Luke Richardson and, you know, what could have been and where he sits now with the Habs, but you know, the senator's, like it seems is a story retold every year are having trouble with their power play again and again. And it's, it's just kind of been anemic and it's gotten even worse this season. And I'm not sure if it's just because of the personnel, because of the scheme, a bit of both, but I wanted to get your gauge on really how the power play has been for the senators. Yeah. I would, I would say that, you know, you're the, the, I agree with the comment that has it been scheme and has it been personnel. And I think over the, the the last few years it's it's been a little bit of both and you can count me among the legions who have have grown absolutely tired and frustrated with the slingshot entry business and everything else and, and clearly it wasn't working and the fact that they stuck with it so long is if there's a criticism criticism of of uh dj smith at this point is is i feel that that he sticks too long with a certain um, approach, philosophy, pattern, whatever you want to call it, before realizing that that um, a different approach is needed, and I think that's been the case. But and I'm going to leave, you know, Jack Capuano and and uh, and the rest of the assistant coaches um, all answer to the head coach. So I'm I'm going to leave everything at the doorstep of the head coach, um, mm. even though he delegates and and um, Davis Payne and. And uh, Jack Capuano would have different responsibilities in terms of the special teams. For me, everything stops at the head coach's doorstep. Yeah. Um, and I just, I, I feel like, and I don't know if it's because um, he's a young coach and I don't hold that against him. I, I think he's he's been quite forthcoming in saying, you know, when he has felt that he's made mistakes, uh, I loved hearing him say, you know, maybe I didn't handle Colin White the right way. Uh, at the beginning of the season. So, you know, I, I like the fact that he's been willing to admit when uh, maybe his approach hasn't been the best. 
when it comes to uh, the power play, I, I think they stuck with the uh, the uh, the system or approach that they were uh, trying to use for too long. And let and let's face it, there everybody talks about schemes and everything else in the power play. There's about three or four that everybody uses. Now, in terms of an umbrella or, or emphasizing the bumper, I mean, so much of it depends on your personnel and who fits into those positions and everything else the right way. But it's not an in, an incredibly complex thing. Um, and in fact, I think the best power plays are the ones that that keep it simple. Everybody know their, knows their job. They move the puck crisply. They make use of the open space to create chances. And I think. I think sometimes in watching this team, it, it leaves me with the impression that they have not been given a clear enough picture of what they're expected to do. And the key to a good power play, as I said, is is quick puck movement, finding those open places, and and having a bunch of a, a few patterns that the players can can um, easily execute. And too often, watching that that power play when it does manage to get into the into the zone, which has been the biggest problem, let's face it, is is too little zone time. Um, it looks like they think about it too much, and the puck doesn't get zipping around. And when we've seen the power play be effective, has that not been the, the most satisfying and visible thing to see is the way Batherson and Stutzle and, and Shabbat can move that puck around? When, yeah. when, we've seen it, when we've seen it be threatening, that that's been the thing that stands out for me is is they move the puck and and we're starting to see them we're starting to see the team now move into uh, this new generation that have tremendous puck skills and and I think this team does the potential to have a fantastic power play when you look at the way guys like Batherson can both move the puck and shoot the puck that they're gonna they're gonna provide a, a whole host of of different threats and different looks that they're going to be able to give opposition penalty kills. But right now it's, it's still a frustrating work in progress. Yeah. I think, uh, thanks Chris. I think you bring out some excellent points there on the subject of the power play, uh, lack of zone time being a huge one and just frustration with entries and just getting stuck in neutral zone purgatory half the time. Uh, yeah. one of the follow-up questions we had about this, I think you touched on this a little bit, but maybe, maybe you can expand upon it a little bit more. Is there are some possible short-term solutions and there are some possible long-term solutions to the power play. Short-term, it might be changing up the way we enter the zone, trying to get better at face-off, things like that. Long-term could be something else. I was wondering if you have any possibilities about you know either of those approaches. How to how to look to turning this around? Short short-term, I think I think um, definitely that the the power play breakout needs to be addressed. And and again, like there's nothing new in the league for the most part. And I think it involves going back and, and, and you go and you look and see the most powerful and best power plays in the league. You go and you look at what they do and you try and find the ones who have similar personnel, right? It's ridiculous to try and, and, uh, and run a power play that, that uh, might be built around the skills of McDavid and Dreisaitl because not many teams have two guys like that. They can put on the ice at the same time. But that's what I would be doing, and I know I've had coaches tell this, say this to me before. It's you know a lot of video work. You go and look at at teams that you think you can emulate, who have similar skill sets. What works for them? 
and what doesn't. I, I think at the top of the list is trying to figure out a better breakout. And, and looking at the skill that they have, you would think that they would be able to they would be able to do that. And I'm sure it's frustrating for everybody involved. It's frustrating for the players to keep getting rebuffed at the opposition blue line and having to go back and retrieve the puck again in their zone and and um, and start up again. So in, in in the short term, I think if they could there's only what 20 games left in the season, but it's never too late to start trying. Um, I think if they could find a way to break the puck out and bring it up ice and figure out which guys are doing that, it's ridiculous that at this point in the season, we're still talking about this in my opinion, mm-hmm. but if they could find a way to break the puck up the ice, I think once they get in zone, like I said, um, I've been pretty impressed. It's been short spurts, but I've been impressed with the way that, that, um, Having Stutzley and, and Atherson on on either side, and Kachuk, Kachuk down um, a lot of times in that in that bumper position or Dadinov, you know. And again, that there's another miscalculation by the organization bringing Dadinov in, thinking that he was going to be a guy that could ignite your power play. And, and here we sit in um, the beginning of April, and what's he got? One power play point, I think, at this point. Yeah. So that that's. You know, that for me is a head-scratcher um, to some extent. But I guess when you have a chance to play with Huberdeau and Barkov... Um, <laughs> Those guys are all right. I might explain a little bit why he had some success on the power play uh, before. But for me, that certainly has been a big, you know, a big miss in, in terms of when we're talking... Uh, in terms of talking about power play uh, uh, success or lack of success. But short-term, uh, I would... I would say trying to figure out a better breakout strategy. Longer term, I think it's going to take care of itself. I just, I just think they're going to have. They're not going to be. They can't help but have a good power play with the talent that they're going to be able to have up front as as uh, Stutzla and, and and Batherson get get more experience. So um, yeah, and you know, and, and Norris, and when Shane Pinto gets here, and. Um, you know, I, I think the future's bright in terms of, of what kind of power play they're going to have. For me, the, the, uh, the hardest part of the equation has been figured out. You're going to have talent. You're, you're going to have guys that can, that can run a good power play. The, the, uh, the pressure is going to be on the coaching staff to come up with, to come up with a plan that best fits the talent that you've got. Um, and I think they're going to have the talent. Yeah. That's a that's an excellent point. And uh, pivoting to personnel, though, uh, provides us a great opportunity to turn to this, the the trade deadline, which is another uh, big item that's occupying the minds of Sens fans uh, as we're all sitting here in this long stretch between games. Uh, there's a couple pieces that uh, we might expect that uh, might be moving at the deadline, possibly Dzingel, possibly a player like Mike Riley, uh, maybe an outside bet, someone like a Branson. Uh, of those guys or anyone else on the roster, who do you think is perhaps most likely to move before the deadline? Or uh, as well, who do you think ought to be moved before the deadline? And who do you think the sense to try and hang on to? Yeah, I would I would say most likely to get moved. I think some teams are going to be gun-shy looking at Dzingel just because of the, the previous um, body of knowledge that's out there in terms of, of him having his best success when he plays for the Senators. And it didn't work for him when he went to Columbus. He wound up being a healthy scratch during the playoffs there, playing on a much better team. Didn't work for him very well in, in Carolina. So I, I wonder if, if those things, normally I would say Dzingel would be 
a great addition, a guy who can, you know, probably play on your third line. He's he's been a guy who scored in the mid twenties before. Um, but I just wonder if if the price is going to be quite depressed for Ryan Zingle just because of the uh, just because of the previous experience. I, I think the guy that has the most value for them at this point would be Riley. Um, every team, every team needs defensive depth in the playoffs, right? I mean, most of the time you're looking at probably having to use you know nine defensemen in the course of a playoff run, sometimes ten. Um, I would say that Riley would probably have the most value. Um, his play, um, since he got teamed up with Zub, has certainly hiked his value among the, the pro scouts that I've spoken to. And 1.5 million, he's going to be a pretty digestible um, cap hit to be able to fit into your uh, to fit into your budget. So uh, I, I would say at this at this moment, Riley's probably got the most value. Um, that said, and I wouldn't be surprised. I wouldn't be surprised to see Riley and and, and Zingle get moved. Um, and I just, I, the rest of the guys are just looking at the way Good Branson's played and Josh Brown and Brown's contract situation, and and the fact that you know, um, uh, these guys can barely be in the lineup on the worst defense in the National Hockey League. I don't, I don't know how a contender could look at those guys and say that that these are guys that we could bring in and even in a pinch have them contribute to what we're trying to do in the playoffs. Absolutely. Are you suggesting that uh, Good Branson is not a like-for-like like replacement for Aaron Ekblad if they need to, uh, you know, <laughs> if Florida needs to beef up their blue line? Uh, no, well, maybe, maybe if you were allowed to play both Josh Brown and Good Branson at the same time, <laughs> back there, yeah. Just uh, stacked on top of each other in a trench coat, like a real <laughs> NHL defenseman. I think if yeah, if you were allowed to play all of them at the same time, maybe. <laughs> hey, Good Branson started his career in Florida. <laughs> yeah, you never go. know. Uh, I actually kind of wanted to ask something about Riley. Now, this is kind of like one of the what people would call, you know, a forty chess move. Um, you know, I looked at the Riley situation and we saw that uh, Shane Gossespierre was put on waivers and nobody claimed him. And I think it's an interesting situation because to me, he's a guy who his last couple of coaches haven't really extended the leash for him. He's been on the third pairing. Um, I've heard from multiple Flyers fans that he's been playing on his offside, which he usually isn't. Uh, so he's been playing on his offside. He's been healthy scratch sometimes. And I kind of looked at it, you know, there was talk today about the Flyers trying to make room um, uh, to have a bigger trade. And that's why they put Gosses Bear on waivers. And, you know, that's something that I think if you're the Senators, it would be interesting to look at, okay, you guys have this contract that you're not so interested in. it. The real money is less than the cap hit. We could trade you Mike Riley, who has similar production, although he has a lower ceiling than Shane Gosses Bear. I think that Shane Gosses Bear uh, would be that kind of player that the Sens could almost you know, give Riley to Philadelphia and then Philadelphia gives the centers a pick and Goss's bear back, take the contract off their hands. Ottawa now has a guy who has the offensive upside to fit in your top four while you develop guys like Sanderson or Brandstrom. And he takes those heavier minutes off those guys, put him with Zub. And because of his similar game to Riley, I think that that almost might be a situation where he's able to thrive more. It's an interesting, uh, an interesting theory. Um, 
you know, just having talked to, and here's here, you know, Gosta beer get, gets, goes to, um, to Philly and has that fantastic, that fantastic start to his career. And, you know, he was on everybody's, on everybody's radar and it, it's, it, He's he's been in decline ever since, and and whether you think it's it's because of the way that he's been um, used by the coach, um, and I look at Alain Vigneault, and and Alain Vigneault's had success everywhere that he's gone. So if if Alain Vigneault's looking at this player and is wondering how to use him in his lineup, um, for me that that it sets off a, a little bit of an alarm bell in terms of, of how reliable he might be. Um, do you want to bring in a guy who's got, uh, what, two more years at, at four and a half, I think, even though, like you said, I don't think the cap at this point is probably going to be that much of an issue for the Senators. And, and like you said, the real money is always going to be uh, probably more important for at least another, another season or two. Um, maybe you could have got creative with that, but. Um, I just look at, yeah, I just, the, the, co- the, the scouts I've talked to and, and looking at the way Vino's used them, I, I just don't know if, if um, even at the reduced hard dollars that you're going to have to put out for him, if, if he's a guy that fits into what the Senators are going to be doing right now. And is he, is he just going to wind up being a guy who winds up um, as a lefty, just being another guy who blocks the progress of, of a couple of the other kids? Like, what do you look at? So, you know, because I think, you know, I, uh, everybody seems to think that that uh, Sanderson's going to go back for uh, another season at UND, which I think is probably the smart thing to do. Uh, which means he's here after next season. You know, you would still have Gostabir uh, here with um, uh, another year on his on his deal, which isn't insurmountable. But I, I just look at that left that left D. Um, and I think you want to leave yourself a little bit of, of flexibility. I think it, at some point you just need to let Branstrom play and figure out what you've got. And, and then you can make your decision on Branstrom and whether you need to get more help there or, or whatever. But at, at some point you need to let these kids play and figure out what you've got. Uh, absolutely. Couldn't, couldn't have said it better myself. And Chris, I have to say, you're you've become the king of transitions so far, and and segue, and because uh, we're we're actually going to pivot to uh, to the UND prospects now, and uh, I I completely am okay with with Jake Sanderson, you know, going uh, and playing at uh, at UND for another year. Obviously, I I think. He's already dominant at that level, especially in in uh, I believe uh, you know the uh, fifth overtime game. Uh, he was still he still had legs. He still had yeah. the ability to to skate like the wind. And it would be really interesting to see how he fares in the AHL. But you know, with the way the NCAA works, it's it's uh, it's really difficult. You know, as soon as you get an agent, you're in a, you're ineligible. So it's it's a tough uh, a tough road to go. But guys, you know, like Jacob Bernard Docker and Shane Pinto, those those have to be you know slam dunk uh, signings for the Sens, right? Like, uh, do you have any idea of you know when they could uh, make their decision? Have you you heard rumblings or anything? Oh, well, I mean, I've I guess I've heard. 
pretty much what everybody else is, has been um, reporting. And, and that's that, you know, the belief was that, that both uh, Bernard Docker and Pinto were going to come out at this point. Now, somebody raised the point the other day to me that was interesting. And they said m- much of the talk of them coming out this season was um, based on the fact that they thought they were going to win the NCAA championship. It's very true, and that would be a and that would be a logical, that would be a logical next move for them, right? You you win a championship, you move on to the next level, mm-hmm. and I think you know most people would have expected there have been an announcement by now. You know, Cole Caulfield's already signed with uh, with Montreal and is in uh, his quarantine uh, to be able to play there, and I wonder. Um, based on that one conversation that I had, I wonder if they're just making sure that they have no second thoughts or regrets about leaving the program without having kind of finished business. And I, and I wonder if in the back of, of either of their minds, you know, if Sanderson's going to be back, if we came back, um, we could win an NCAA title next year. So, uh, and again, it, it's, this is second and third hand talk that I'm hearing. But yeah. that, I think that's certainly part of part of the uh, the heart to heart that uh, JBD and Pinto are having in terms of of their future. I think they just want to make sure that they're making the best decision for them right now. But that doesn't it seem like following UND doesn't it seem like there's a striking amount of loyalty to that program? Yeah, yeah, you can tell that they love it there. Yeah, so I, I just I just wonder if that's that's part of what's happening right now and why we haven't heard decision one way or the other and and not to say that that's the overriding factor but just that this is something that they're seriously considering and talking among themselves like do we want to come back and be a super team again for another year and maybe get that ncaa title and if and, and again here i'm i'm just uh free in here right now you know if if they're thinking that they would come to the senators right now and have to play in the american hockey league at some point and maybe next season maybe they're thinking they could be like a kale mccarr and i'll spend that another year and make the the jump right away to the national hockey league and never look back and not play a game in the american hockey league so i'm I'm sure that these are you know all points that are being raised in those camps with uh family coaches advisors um no, if I could, if I could spend again, just looking at it from their standpoint, the way I would look at it. If I'm thinking I could go and spend another year at UND and have a damn good chance of of winning an NCAA title, and then have a pretty good chance of stepping straight into the NHL without having to go in the play in the AHL, something I would certainly consider. Yeah, and I kind of think that part of it has to do with the fact that. Jake's dad, Jeff, had such a, a long career in the NHL as well, and he's a very experienced guy, and I think he would all probably have some uh, relatively large amount of say as well, or at least uh, at least influence on his son's choice. But I also think that with Sanderson, he seems like a guy who has a really high drive and just wants to compete. I believe it was his coach who said that he's in the, in the uh, workout room every morning super early before most of the team arrives. And so 
he might be a guy who wants to go potentially to the AHL and and get some more games in the season. No, I I, I think everything is um, I think everything's on the table there. But but I think in their situation and after having lost the way that they did in a screwy year, right? I mean, everything was it was because of of COVID and having to play in the pod in December and everything else. It was it wasn't the best year for them. And, for and, sure. I, and I have to think that that's at least a little bit of the conversation is that, you know, maybe, maybe another year at a full year at, at, um, at UND and then a chance to jump straight to the NHL. Cause you're, you're, uh, because you're a year older. Um, there's gotta be something that they're thinking about. Do you think though, that they'd still have the same chance at a championship losing guys like Kawaguchi, Kirstead, uh, Gaber, I think is now oh, a bill able question. to sign. Yeah, I, I think those are all. You know, I think those are all things that have to be that have to be discussed. And when does JBD have to sign? I think he needs to sign now. <laughs> yeah, you know. So I think I think in his case anyway that that um, you know that that's something that that's going to enter into it. But I think for you know I think in in Sanderson's case, you know I, I think that having looked at what the trend has been among those young D coming into the NHL and the amount of experience they've had at the NCAA level. I think that's certainly something that um, is something that they would be talking about. And you get a chance to play in the world junior again and have a chance to excel on, on that stage. So it's going to be interesting. Yeah. I'll be shocked though. If I'll be shocked if, if JBD and, and Pinto don't sign within the next couple of days. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, that's a that's a great point. We're we're all hoping for the same thing. Just uh, hitting F five on Twitter dot com. And uh, if there's one final point, uh, Chris, <laughs> before we'll let you go. And again, thanks for thanks for coming on. It's been it's been a lot of fun. We're getting some great uh, some great answers here. And to pivot to something lighthearted to wrap it up, uh, can you talk to us about your favorite sentence memory? Uh, and I'll just to set the stage. I'll go first. Uh, I was lucky enough to be uh, at Game Three of uh, that series against Pittsburgh in the 2017 Cons Finals, where the Suns won five one, and there was that wow. flurry of goals right near the beginning of the game, and uh, we were just, oh my god, it was it was glorious. Uh, you know, we just thought we'd score eight that game. And the guy in front of us just spent the whole rest of the game just like shouting, you know, the ether, just like, where's Crosby? Is he even here? Have you guys seen Crosby? As a, a personal favorite. <laughs> I'm way older than you guys. So, I'm, and I mean way older. So, for, for me, it's pretty tough to beat that, that first game in Senators history. Going back to that that night and beating the Montreal Canadiens, who would go on to win the Stanley Cup that year. You know, I know a lot of people talk about beating the Habs on that that opening night um, in 1992. But when you think it was uh, the Pat Patrick Waugh, Jacques Demers led Montreal Canadiens that they beat, um, and it just it, you know there was just uh, such a feeling of of uh, hope and and uh, of a new um, era for Ottawa. Um, and it transcended sports, right? Like having an NHL team in Ottawa back then, um, it just represented the, like the arrival of Ottawa. Like Ottawa, it, I came here from Montreal 
to go to Carlton's uh, journalism school. And um, so I was here through the uh, the 80s when the writers were awful. You know, I was going to school <laughs> and, and the Ottawa Rough Riders were terrible. They were a running joke. And and that kind of was like Ottawa's reputation. Like Ottawa was the velvet rut, you know, government town with not much going on. And the arrival of the senators, and, that, and that's why I say that that opening night was was uh, so important, it was because it really it signified a change in the way that that Ottawa was perceived, not just from a, a sports standpoint, but but the the standing of the city. It was like you know Ottawa could finally be viewed on equal footing with with you know Montreal, Toronto, or or Vancouver, because we look at so much in this country through a hockey lens. At Ottawa finally having an NHL team meant so much to meant so much to the city on so many different on so many different levels. It almost didn't matter how bad the team was that first year. You know, Ottawa had NHL hockey again, finally. And um, yeah, for me, when I when I look back on that, I just think because it it um, was such a huge thing in terms of of the way uh, a, a team made a city feel about itself. That I'm gonna I'm gonna go back and say that that that's my favorite memory is is that opening night and just what it signified for Ottawa. And I think your point speaks like really well to transcending sports in general because you know on a personal level and not to make you feel old at all, but my grandparents, <laughs> <Totally better>. uh, <laughs> my grandparents, uh, they immigrated from Europe yeah. and you know they they moved to Ottawa and of course the senators come into the league and they're living in, in Ottawa and they're like, all right, well, you know, let's kind of get ourselves into the culture of hockey. And, yep. and now my, my grandparents are some of the, the biggest Sens fans yeah. and, you know, listen to our podcast every week, which yep. is, uh, which is awesome. But yeah, that, that first season and the first game was something that they really hold in their memories and they've been through all the highs and lows and yeah. So, I just, mean, you know, that the, you know, the idea that, um, before the Senators were here, it was, I, I would say it was pretty much a Montreal Canadiens, Toronto Maple Leafs, Boston Bruins town. Those, those seem to be the, you know, the three most popular teams and, and uh, across the river in, in, uh, well, we used to call it Hull back then, but Gatineau now, you know, they were big Nordiques and, and Canadians fans. And, you know, that the Senators have come in and, and, uh, I just, I, I love the, the, uh, you know, the whole fandom that's grown up around the Senators now and, you know, you guys doing this podcast, there's so many good, good uh, podcasts and so much good content being created around the Senators now made all the more remarkable by the fact that they've been so shitty for so long. <laughs> that, yeah. that, I mean, so many fans are, are still so invested and passionate about the team. And when I do the pre and post game shows on, on 1200, Know, and and we're still there for two hours doing a post game show after another crappy loss to the Leafs because fans are still so involved with the team and and uh, and they're upset about something that happened in the game or they're calling in after a great victory over the Leafs, you know, to to crow about something that that the team's done. So you know the the uh, yeah, it's you can't underestimate the importance of of the arrival of the senators in terms of creating this this whole culture in this in this city and i and i 
again, like I said, that the content being created now around the team is is uh, is remarkable. There's so much smart stuff out there. And again, like you know, this is after going through you know the ownership stuff and and the team being at the bottom of the league for the last four or five years. Um, yeah, I, I I I just think that the the, the culture that's grown up around uh, the Senators in this city is pretty remarkable. Agreed, and the Sen Sicko movement kind of encapsulates yeah. that. Yeah, but exactly. Yeah, well. Thank you so much for joining us, Chris. Uh, that was it was really great to hear from you. And thank you so much for joining us and sharing your insight onto the team with us. My pleasure, guys. Let's do it again sometime. Would love to. Perfect. <laughs> and uh, is there anything? Uh, do you want to plug for our listeners? Uh, anything going on that you want to give a shout out to? Well, I don't know when you're going to post this, but I'm doing pre and post on on Thursday, April first, for the Senators and um, in the Montreal Canadiens. So that's the next thing I've got on my docket. Beauty. All right, I got to tell Ty to get on the editing ASAP after this one. <laughs> uh, there you go. All right, thanks so much, Chris. You're very welcome. I think that was a pretty good and in-depth uh, analysis of the team this year. I didn't expect him to, to go so long on some of those answers, but... I really liked it. I was I was like, all right, I'll just let him talk. Let's see uh, where this leads. And I, I found it especially interesting when he talked about the whole pro scouting side for Shane Goss's bear. I was like, oh, interesting. Okay. And uh, yeah, so that kind of, I don't know. It was, it was like neat to hear that because obviously you don't really hear that and you don't see that out on the Twitterverse. So I like the little in, insight nuggets like that. Yeah, I I thought it was a really uh, a really great interview. Had a lot of uh, a lot of good points. Uh, I was always anticipating where we wanted to take things next, uh, which was uh, yeah. which is great. Made uh, made for a really natural flow, and uh, yeah, really appreciated all the answers he was able to provide. He was like reading minds, man. Yeah, genuinely, he really was. Like every time we were going to transition, he transitioned it for us. Like consummate professional. I mean, like, like it was awesome. Uh, all those stories, and I, I loved the, uh, you know, the opening night about the sentence. That that's just uh, such a cool story. Yeah, yeah, and and uh, I have to say, we got to ca- stop uh, implying that uh, all our guests are old. First Mendez, and now <laughs> now CJ. <laughs> oh boy. Well, boys, anything else you want to wrap it up here in the third period of the podcast, or is this going to be a short third period tonight? I think it's a short third period. I'd just like to say, uh, you know, to all our listeners, thank you so much for for constantly coming and and listening to the podcast and and sticking through it. Uh, We do this for you guys. Uh, It's always awesome seeing um, interactions on Twitter and and on Reddit and Facebook and so on. and you know, if you you have any questions you want answered uh, by these this three ragtag group of fellas, you know, just hit us up. <laughs> yeah. Also, shout out to the Sens Discord because I know I talk with you guys like almost every day about different topics and all that, and uh, everyone engages really well. So please uh, message me on Discord, and you can answer some questions, do a mailbag episode sometime, and you guys are a huge part of why we do this and why we try our best to bring in 
uh, whatever guests we can to make this show really pop off. So thank you to everybody. 